0: So Mark chapter 5, we'll start in verse 21 here in a second. Would you join me please in a word of prayer? Fathers, we come to your word this morning um, for study. We realize we have already come to it in many other ways. Through singing, through prayer, through reading, uh, through acting it in fellowship, trusting it in many ways. Uh, And Lord, we come to your word, we come to you because we are people in need. Uh, We don't have the answers, we need the answers. We don't have the strength, we need your strength. We're not okay as we are. God, we need to be what you want us to be. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us this morning through your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us tender hearts that we would receive this word. And let the fruit of our time together this morning be a purer, clearer faith in the God who knows us by name and has done all that is required for our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 uh, good guys always have great bad guys. That's just a, a truth about movies, books. A good guy has to have a great bad guy. Really, the the better the bad guy, the better the good guy. So, for example, G.I. Joe has Cobra. Right? If Cobra's not so good, then G.I. Joe's not great. He-Man has Skeletor. In the Transformers world, Autobots have Decepticons. Uh, the Dukes of Hazzard had Boss Hogg and Roscoe P. Coltrane. They've got to have a great bad guy. Luke Skywalker has Darth Vader. Starship Enterprise has Klingons. Doctor Who has the Master. Smurfs have Gargamel. Good guys need great bad guys. It's just a, a very common thing. Uh, and it's true of your faith as well that your faith in Jesus Christ has many enemies. They come in different intensities, they come in different manifestations. To be sure, we have one great enemy, but he schemes against you and works against you in so many different ways. And it's important for you and I, when we think about our walk with Christ, our belief, our trust in Christ, it's important that you and I do so with an awareness of the enemies that we go toe-to-toe with on a regular basis. Why is that important? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's important for you to know these enemies because they are the reason that you live with such little joy and such great sin. These enemies war against you, scheme against you, and they want to do all they can to fracture your trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior. If you're not a follower of Jesus, why is it important to know this? If you're not a follower of Jesus, well, you're going to find that these enemies, they keep you from salvation altogether. They keep you from forgiveness, wholeness, and peace, and life everlasting. If you had an enemy that worked against you in that degree, if you had an enemy that worked against you with such hatred and contempt, wouldn't you want to know? And wouldn't you want to know how to act against, how to work around, how to overcome that enemy? I'm confident you would. And so this morning, we're going to study a story, an incredible story, that highlights for us enemies of faith. We use the word faith a lot this morning, and so it's important that we have a working definition of that word. Here's a very simple definition of the word faith. Faith is biblically informed trust in God. Faith is biblically informed trust in God. It's biblically informed, meaning the content, the things in which we believe, we trust, they come from this word and this word exclusively. What this says about God and about salvation and about us, we we believe it all. And so our faith is, first of all, biblically informed. There's certain specific things. There's things we've got to know. It's biblically informed and it is trust. Biblically informed trust in God. Meaning we rely on what God says. We believe it with our heads. We trust it with our lives. We live and speak and act and think in accordance with this word. That's what faith looks like. It's not hope into some mystical unknown. It's not a wish into the universe. Faith is biblically informed trust in god faith has a focus a direction it's in the god of creation the god of our salvation the god that we know as father son holy spirit the god revealed in this word that's the direction of our faith faith is biblically informed trust in god and our passage today tells of two amazing encounters with jesus where faith is a primary factor in both of these encounters so my goal this morning in this incredible story, is to show you the rock-solid nature of faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, this passage is going to strengthen you in your trust in the Lord. It's going to challenge you, but it's going to strengthen you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to see how utterly powerful Jesus is and the difference that Christ makes in a life today. So our passage shows us four challengers to our faith in Christ if we set our eyes on Jesus, then his enemies are going to be put down forever. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers, named Jairus, came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, Some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So I want to highlight in this incredible story four challengers to our faith in Christ, four enemies of your biblically informed trust in your Savior. Savior. These are four fights that faith wins. So if you're taking notes this morning, I'll give you the challenger. The first is this. It's faith versus pride. Faith versus pride in verses 21 through 24. So our story unfolds with a familiar setting, right? If you've been with us through our study of Mark, we're always by this lake so far, always by the Sea of Galilee. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, He's well-known. People flock to wherever Jesus is. Uh, they know Him and pursue Him as a miracle worker. They come to Him for healing. They don't come for Him because they think of Him as the Messiah in the way you and I think of Messiah. They want healing. Jesus gets out of the boat, onto the shore. The crowd is there. And among the crowd is a man named Jairus. We're told that Jairus is a, one of the rulers in the synagogue. So, the synagogue, think of it like a satellite campus apart from the mothership, the temple in Jerusalem. Each little community had its own synagogue, and Jairus is one of the rulers or one of the presidents, one of the leaders in the synagogue. Uh, He's one of a team of administrators who took care of the facilities and also organized and orchestrated worship services, took care of education and, and other ministerial activities. So it'd be right to think of him kind of like a pastor, elder type of person, but he carried a bit more gravitas because the whole community is centered around this synagogue. So everyone knows who the synagogue leaders are. Everyone in the little community, they know who Jairus is. So he has sort of this societal weight about him, and he has an important role there in the synagogue. Now Mark doesn't tell us how Jairus Thinks or feels about Jesus prior to this encounter. But we know that Jesus prior to this has been a source of conflict in the synagogue. Not necessarily this specific synagogue, but in a synagogue nevertheless, back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It's Sabbath. You remember this story? It's the Sabbath. Jesus is in the synagogue. The Pharisees bring in a man with a withered hand to test Jesus. Will he heal this man on the Sabbath, and according to their oral tradition, thereby break the Sabbath? And what does Jesus do? Stand up, heals a man, and then he eviscerates verbally the Jewish leaders who are present that day. It, the Jewish leaders that witness that, they leave that synagogue, chapter 3, verse 6, they leave it plotting how they can kill Jesus. These are Jairus' colleagues. In as much as Jesus' reputation spread around the Sea of Galilee from village to village, there's no doubt that a synagogue ruler like Jairus might have had a prior understanding or opinion of who Jesus was. But regardless of whatever that unknown previous opinion was, at this point, Jairus, a man of status, a man of the law, comes and throws himself at the feet of a known Sabbath or accused Sabbath violator. He's a man of stature. Jesus is, according to the crowd, this wandering miracle worker. But out of desperation for the healing of his daughter, Jairus throws his title everything else aside, and throws himself at the feet of Jesus, begging him to come and heal her. Now, I don't think that Jairus at this point has perfect faith, but I think he does inform us in an important way in in that he shows us the value of humility when we come to Jesus. The faith that saves, the faith that heals, the faith that lifts is a humble faith. Jairus didn't come to Jesus with his resume and with his titles and and demand respect from Jesus. I'm Jairus, synagogue leader. Come and do what I tell you to do now, Jesus. He He doesn't play that game. Jairus in this moment, out of desperation, throws himself humbly at the feet of Jesus. It's important that we recognize how incompatible pride and faith are. In the battle between faith and pride, someone's always winning, either pride is winning or or faith is winning. Faith is trust in another whereas pride is trust in myself. Faith says God can do this but pride says I can do this. Faith says I need God. Pride says God needs me. Faith says God is good no matter what. Pride says God is good if he does what I want. So it's vital for you and I in the battle in faith versus pride to come humbly before our God. See, the humble person is the Christ-like person. Christ-like in that Jesus himself shows us true humility all the way to the cross. He doesn't cling to his divine status, but rather he uses his divine status to work salvation, to finish salvation for us. And that salvation is won through His utter humiliation. The eternal, creator, sovereign God humbled Himself and took on flesh. For the eternal God to take on flesh, to become like His creation is no small thing. It's an immeasurable distance from... The eternity of his throne to the Middle East. From eternal, powerful God to a human with flesh on. You can't measure that distance in light years or eons or any other way. It's incalculable. And the God who said, let there be and everything was, is the God who in flesh has to answer to his parents, and he rides on a donkey, and he gets thirsty, and God gets hungry, and God uses doors And then God is arrested by his own and he is beaten by them, mutilated almost beyond recognition to within an inch of his life. He is nailed to beams of wood, hoisted in the air, spit upon and mocked as he hangs naked in front of his mother and he dies a gruesome death. Far worse than the nails, he suffers the wrath of God for the sin of those whom he saves. Sinless, perfect, holy, holy, holy God humbles himself all the way to the cross And in the battle of pride versus faith, faith wins because Christ has won. He has shown us the way. He laid down His life and He took it up again. Our culture does not value humility. It's not a characteristic that's prized by our world or its leaders. I I don't know who among our politicians is known for their humility, nor would be praised for their humility. We often equate it with weakness. Uh, But the writer pastor A.W. Tozer helps us think about humility correctly. In his book, The Pursuit of God, he says this, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life, He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than the angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. Jairus came humbly to Jesus and you must also. Pride is such an unnecessary burden to bear. So humble yourself. Submit to God. Let him lift you up. In the battle of faith in Christ versus pride, faith wins every time. It's no contest. There's a second enemy to our faith in this story. That second enemy is this. It is faith versus superstition. Faith versus superstition in verses 24 through 34. Mark is such a great storyteller. I feel like I say that almost every Sunday. He's such a brilliant storyteller and And so here in this account, as Jesus and Jairus are headed towards Jairus' home to where the sick girl is, they're interrupted by a sick woman. And look at how this woman's described in verse 25. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 12 years this woman afflicted with this sickness. And it would have been a horrible ordeal. Her bleeding left her ceremonially unclean. And therefore she would have been forbidden from worship. And she would have been isolated uh, in terms of social life. And we're told that she spent all she had on doctors and attempts to make her better. But the doctors had all failed. She's out of money. In this regard, she's kind of like the man who was possessed by demons that we read about last week. That man, like this woman, beyond human help. There's nothing more anyone could do for him, nothing more anyone can do for her. She's at the mercy of Jesus. And so what does she do? Look at verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, Mark gives us all the right details. Jesus is in a crowd. There's people pressing him from all around. The woman doesn't touch Jesus. She touches his robe, and she's healed immediately in that moment. She doesn't walk away and get healed progressively. The healing is immediate and instant right then and there. And Jesus senses it. In the midst of this big crowd, everyone touching him, he knows when someone touches him and is healed, and so Jesus stops everything and he asks the question, who touched me? Who did th-? he's being touched everywhere. Who touched me? And his disciples, aren't they fantastic? Verse 31. You see the people crowding against you. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? Thank you, captains. Obvious. Aren't they wonderfully dense? Time and again they miss the point. So finally, Jesus searches the crowd. He's looking for this woman. And she identifies herself. She falls trembling and terrified at his feet. Isn't that what miracles do? Time and again, in the Word, we see people experience these miracles, and the response is fear, awe, reverence. She falls at his feet. She tells him everything that she did. And what is Jesus' response in verse 34? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, I find our woman to... Provide for us a positive example and a negative example. The positive example is this. She believes Jesus can indeed heal her. Everyone else has failed, but she's going to get there to Jesus. She, she shows such courage. She takes great risk to be in this social setting to sort of mouse her way through the crowd to get up to touch Jesus. Her negative example, and I want to be gentle here, but I think it's a a teachable point. Her negative example is this. Her desire to be healed by touching Jesus' garments. It reflects a common belief in the ancient world that a person's power could be transmitted through their clothing. Similar similar beliefs and results are reported in the book of Acts by those who try to touch Peter's shadow in chapter 5. And then in Acts chapter 19 with Paul's handkerchiefs, same idea. And these beliefs, they seem to be more like magic or superstition than true faith. And I think that's why Jesus stops. And I think that's why Jesus seeks this woman out in the crowd. He can't let her be healed by a flawed premise and then walk away thinking that superstition or magic has won the day. There's no magic in the clothes of Jesus, The power of healing, the power of wholeness, the power of salvation is in Jesus himself, not his wardrobe. And so Jesus stops. I think this is why he stops. I think this is why he seeks her out. He's showing such grace and tenderness to this woman who who the crowd doesn't even recognize. And I think also this is why Jesus corrects her. When he says, daughter, your faith has healed you, he's correcting It's not the grasp of your hand. It's what your faith has held on to that has healed you. Superstition, magic, these aren't the things that make faith effective or Jesus powerful. It's just Jesus himself, God Almighty in the flesh, author of life and death, who has the ability to heal. He wants to affirm her and he wants to set her in the right direction. How often do we feel that we have to add something to our faith to make it more effective? I mean, can faith really be as easy as simply trusting Jesus? Is that really all there is to it? Maybe we need to add a special prayer formula or some sort of special ri- ritual or a religious act. Maybe if we do these things, it'll really activate our faith and, and set it on a path of uh, greater potency. A number of years ago, I caught a... Uh, I caught a televangelist, a, a prosperity gospel preacher on TV late at night. He's well-known, a well-known scammer and liar. His name's Robert Tilton. You might know him if you were to Google him. Robert Tilton, and, and he, he would teach this, the same heresy, the same demonic heresy. If you send me your money, then God's going to give you blessings. And I thought, man, that'd be fun to get on his mailing list. So I got on his mailing list. And... It was amazing the amount of mail I received from Robert Tilton Ministries and all kinds of gimmicks and weird things. And, and one item in particular was a, a, an anointed handkerchief. So I opened the envelope and inside was this little piece of fabric that had been blessed by Brother Robert himself. And I was to use this in prayer To get the miracle from God that I wanted. And then I was to put it back in the supplied envelope along with the financial gift and mail it back to Brother Robert. I'm sowing my seed of faith. I'm showing God how serious I am. And then God would answer that prayer. And look, I'm not going to lie, when I held that handkerchief, I felt something. I felt anger. felt rage at this lie that so many kind people were duped by. Now, to be sure, Robert Tilton and his type, they still have sway around the world, but probably for this audience, not so big of a threat. But we still tend to function at times like, Jesus needs a little bit of help for me to get things rolling. Faith is good, and, and, if, and, and if I can add something to that in some way, pray a certain way, find some way to leverage Jesus my way, then uh, we'll get this thing rolling and it's going to be okay. So I'm going to work to earn my salvation, or I'll use special prayer formulas, or I'll use some sort of worldly spiritual New Age practice combined in my Christianity to try and do all kinds of things. But brothers and sisters, when we function that way, What we're saying is Christ is not enough. Jesus is not sufficient. He does not have power necessary to heal, to save, to rescue, to guide. I've got to add something to make up for Christ's deficiencies. And all that is a lie from hell. Christ is sufficient. All powerful. All loving. So good. Brothers and sisters, you need to trust in the God of your salvation. So does that mean if I just simply believe in Jesus, I'll be healed of whatever ailment I have? That's not what this story is about. This is not a primer on how to get your healing here and now. Do exactly what this woman did and you too will be healed exactly the same way she was. That's not what this story is about. This story is not about getting your miracle. This is about trusting Jesus always and exclusively. It's like the Old Testament story in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow before King Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol. And as a result, they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. You remember what they say to the king just before they're thrown into the fire? They say, the God we serve is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. You have set up exclusive trust in every situation, no matter what. That's what Christ calls us to in this encounter with this sweet woman. Paul said it this way, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the kind of faith that marks Jesus' people. Trust in Him, no matter what, because He is all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-loving, our Savior. Faith wins against pride. Faith wins against superstition. Third enemy, faith wins against his fear. Faith versus fear, verses 35 and 36. This is the critical part of the story, if you ask me. This is the pivot point, the major crisis moment. Don't forget, Jairus is still present with Jesus. They're on their way to his sick daughter. There's a sense of urgency, and Jesus stops for this encounter with this woman. Precious moments are ticking away. And then in Jairus' eyes, the worst that could happen happens. People come from his house and tell him, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Look at verse 35. They ask, why bother the teacher anymore? If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, that title keeps coming up, teacher. It's what the disciples said with disgust to Jesus when he's asleep in the boat while the storm was raging, teacher, don't you care? It's what the townspeople said to Jesus after he cast the demons out of the man in the passage we studied last week. They called him teacher. It's not Messiah. It's not a term of endearment and respect. It's it's a term that is much smaller than what Jesus is. They're making a statement to Jairus, perhaps unintentionally, about how little they think Jesus is, how hopeless the situation is. He's a teacher, not the God of life and death. I love the detail Mark gives us in verse 36. Ignoring what they said, (laughs) Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. So this is the critical moment for Jairus. Look, he has no framework for believing Jesus in this moment, none at all. What makes sense in this moment is leaving Jesus and going home to bury his child. And maybe if Jesus hadn't wasted time healing the sick woman, they would have made it in time to heal his daughter. Now it seems like all hope is lost. However, he did see the sick woman healed, and he does hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, just believe. He has the word of his friends and the word of the Lord. Which will he choose? Mark shows us over and over again that faith and fear are at odds with each other. It shows up in the boat when the storm rages. It shows up uh, around the demon-possessed man and his deliverance. It shows up here in this passage as well. Fear is a natural emotion for us to have in so many different situations. But fear makes no sense at all when you are standing in the presence of the omnipotent, omniscient, all-loving God, how could we possibly be afraid when Christ is at our side speaking hope and strength to us? You and I know that Jairus doesn't have anything to fear because as the readers, we have knowledge that he doesn't. We know how this story goes. So imagine you are present in this scene. What would you say to Jairus to encourage him at this point? You might say, brother, don't worry Go with Jesus. He loves you. He'll take care of your daughter. Death isn't the end here. You you won't believe what Jesus is going to do. That'd be good advice you would give to Jairus. And now, sister, and now, brother, I want you to receive your own advice for the crisis you're facing this moment. Don't worry. Go with Jesus. He loves you. He will take care of you. Death isn't the end. You won't believe what Jesus is about to do. This is not about Jairus believing. This is about you believing, casting out this fear. Jesus calls his followers to radical trust. At least it's radical from our perspective. Faith in Jesus is not just for the easy days. It's not for the crises that we can handle on our own. It's for when life goes to DEFCON 1. It's when the old normal is no more. It's, It's never coming back. Faith in Christ is for when we are at the end of ourselves and our world is crumbling. That's where Jairus is. And that's where Jesus says to us, do not be afraid, just believe. Now, there might be times when trusting in Christ is easier because we see some of the trajectory of things But other times, our world will implode, and all we have to rely on is His Word. This is all we'll have, this Word. Heaven and earth pass away, but this Word is forever. All we'll have is this Word. We will lack nothing when we have the Word of God to guide us in our faith. You've heard the analogy, faith is like a muscle. The more you use it, the bigger it gets. I don't agree with that. Faith isn't like a muscle. Faith is like a computer. The more information it has, the more powerful it is. And the information that feeds our faith comes from the Word of God. If all you have is, don't be afraid. Just believe. You have enough because you have the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, we've got to read this every day. We've got to to sit with Jesus every day. We've got to get this word in us every day so that when the hard day comes, we've got that voice speaking to us, confidence, taking away fear, giving us boldness in him, confidence in his strength and his love and his power. Every day, we need this in our lives. Don't be afraid, just believe. Faith is better than pride. Faith puts down superstition. Faith annihilates fear. Final enemy, quickly, faith versus death, verses 37 through 43. Here's what I love in this story. Jesus speaks to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and he doesn't wait for Jairus to respond. Jairus doesn't make some bold statement, I reject my friends and I choose Jesus. We don't have that moment. I think we have a father who cannot formulate words or thoughts in this moment at the word of his daughter's death. I think the the man can't function. And Jesus, in his grace, grabs Jairus, grabs the three, and off they go to Jairus' house. When they arrive, people are wailing all around. It was required and customary in this culture that you would hire musicians and mourners at the death of a loved one. Jesus walks into this chaotic and loud scene and he says, What's with all the noise? The child's not dead but asleep. Now, does Jesus really mean that? Does he mean, no, she's just in a coma, you've misdiagnosed her? That's, that's not what he means. Even in the first century, although they didn't have a smartphone, they knew what alive was and they knew what dead was. So, they know she's dead. She's really dead. When Jesus says she's not dead but asleep, he's referencing the temporary nature of this state. The people can't handle it. The hired mourners, they begin to laugh at Jesus And I just, I love these scenes where Jesus is a little rough with people, right? Uh, Middle of verse 40, they laughed at him after he put them all out. (laughs) I want to know what that looked like. It wasn't a polite, would you please exit through the front door? I think Jesus throws his weight around a little bit here. He throws them out. He grabs mom and dad, Peter and James and John, and they go into the room where The girl lies dead. In the scene, after perhaps some of the abrasiveness of Jesus getting people out of the house, what happens next is divine gentleness and comfort. Verse 41, he took the girl by the hand and said to her, Talitha Coombe. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. Mark gives us the Aramaic words that Jesus would have spoken. The word talitha, it's a literal translation, is not little girl, the literal translation is little lamb. It's a similar name that Jairus called his daughter when he first came to Jesus and fell at his feet. My little daughter is sick. The God of all power, all authority over life and death holds this little girl by the hand and says little lamb get up the woman who touched his robe jesus turns to her it's the only place in the gospel of mark where he talks like this he calls her daughter he shows such value for women and such value for people who are at the bottom of the social ladder that woman was not esteemed by anyone this Girl is a child. She's not esteemed by anyone. Jairus is the big man, but Jesus, all of his weight and attention goes to these two women. I'm struck by Jesus' gentleness, but I'm also struck by his power. You see, Jesus hasn't done a miracle like this before. Raising someone from the dead is a miracle of a different degree, and he does it with such ease Just like in the boat with the storm, just like with the demons who possess the man, Jesus does not pray a special prayer, use a special formula, use magic words, call on the God of heaven for strength and ability. He just speaks the word. And without any sweat, without furrowing his brow, creation obeys its master. Little girl, rise. And she gets up. Just incredible, amazing power on the part of Jesus, which tells us this, that he is the supreme authority over life and death. There's no one else but him. Whoever believes in Jesus, the master of life and death, they're never going to die. They're going to live forever. And what Jesus does in miniature in this story, He's going to do in a grander way not long after this. Because Jesus Himself will take on death. And Jesus Himself will conquer death at the cross. He died in your place for your sins. He took your death so you could have His life. The reason His death is effective is because He rose from the dead three days later, walks out of that tomb... The lion who looked like the lamb that had been sacrificed walks out of that tomb alive forevermore. And our faith in the God who died and rose again is the faith that gives us, through Him, everlasting life, forgiveness, healing, wholeness. This story calls us to faith in Jesus Christ. And time and again, it shows us how trustworthy He is, and how rock-solid our faith is. We've highlighted in this story several foes of our faith. Here's what we've seen this morning. Pride, superstition, fear, death, no match for Jesus Christ. Their power is bound, their power is finite, and for those who trust in Him, He brings us through, carries us over all of it. The outcome is clear. When we hold every challenge up to the power and the trustworthiness and the love of Jesus, Jesus always wins. One thing I love in this story is that faith is in formation for Jairus and faith is in formation for the woman who is healed. They start with one type of faith. That faith is changed by Jesus through this encounter. I wonder how your faith is being formed through Christ today. As a follower of Jesus Christ, faith is always in formation. It's not a one and done deal. You don't arrive at perfection and then live at that plateau the rest of your life. Faith is stretched. Faith is grown. Faith is purified. Faith is focused over and over again over the course of our life. What's the foe you face today? The challenge to your trust in Jesus Christ. What is the lie you're believing that says Christ isn't enough? Don't be afraid. Just believe. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that's why this story is here, is to call you to Him, to show you what He's like. Gentle, loving, mindful, with the lowly and the suffering. A lover of the outcasts. A lover of the downtrodden. Our defender who puts down all the nonsense and the garbage our Savior who dies in our place and lives evermore. He calls you to trust in Him. And if you'll call on Him, if you'll call on Jesus Christ in faith, you'll hear Him respond this way, my daughter, my son, my little lamb. Let's pray together. Father, God, We need help with with this line. Don't be afraid, just believe. You know how fragile we are and how prone to fear we are and perhaps with good reason. But oh God, would you give us eyes to see you this morning above it all. Don't let us define our view of you by our circumstances, but Father God, Would you let us approach our circumstances through confidence in our Creator, Sovereign God, the one who has all authority over all creation who quiets storms with the Word, the one who has all authority over all spiritual matters who casts out demons with the Word, who has all authority over life and death who raises the dead with a little word, the one who has all authority over salvation who has won that for us through the sacrifice of himself. God, give us eyes to see you this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are just hammered today and ask for your strength in them. Lord, let them trust in you no matter what. To have a faith that is resolute, that does not shift because you don't shift, you don't change. God, the needs are great, the sickness is great, the situation is dire. But you care for your little lambs, and we trust in that. So, Father, God, lift my sisters today and lift my brothers. Give us strength to walk. I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They've believed certain misconceptions, even lies about who you are or might be. Let them be one to you by a picture of your gentleness, your grace, your presence, your love, your strength for them today. Let them turn away from all the garbage and turn their whole life to you in faith, that by believing they would have life everlasting in your name. Thank you that this is the saving moment, the healing moment, that this is the time, Father, where we exalt you on high. We are glad to be your little lambs and for you to be our shepherd. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.